That'll be page 1072 in your few Bibles.
Would you please stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Tim, would you lead us, please, in the opening prayer? Will you take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 204, 204 in the red? Silent Night in the same hymnal, or 196 in this hymnal, which is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. But wait, there's one more. You could also do 
145, which is O Come All You Faithful in the Bride. First person raises their hand gets it. Oh, Naomi, here's the first hand I saw. That O Come All You Faithful? 145. There it is. Gotta be faster. 145. One, four, five in the brow. Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Matthew 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, page 1496 in your pew Bible. And when you come to that, please stand with us. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. 
a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amandad, Amandad the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jeroam, Jeroam, the father of Ezra, Ezra, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shehiltiel, Shehiltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiod, Abiod, the father of Elikim, Elikim, the father of Azar, Azar, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathon, Mathon, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were fourteen generations in all from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Will you take your red hymnal once more and turn to number 211? 211 in the red.
pretty special. Um, if you want to come on up, we'll get, we'll get situated. You guys, are, you guys can sleep.
Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 1. Today, as I usually do every year, I want to begin a short series dealing with the incarnation of God realized in the birth of his son, Jesus. Our text comes from the book of Matthew, which is known as the gospel of the kingdom. And for good reason, because Matthew deals with Jesus as the promised coming king and the one not only of Israel, and certainly of the Davidic line, but also king of the entire Gentile world, steeped in paganism up until and including the time of Christ. We have no present-day familiarity with kingdoms and monarchs since the founding of our republic, July 4th, 1776. But even then, our new form of government was bought and paid for by the blood of our immigrant population who fought to overthrow King George's tyrannical hold on our people, on our commerce, and yes, on our land. The world of politics up until that time knew only of kings and queens and monarchs and potentates. Yes, with some liberty in the Greek city-states and to a degree under Roman occupancy, but nothing like America's experiment in democracy based on rule. So aptly put by Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Until this time, the world government were all formed from the top down. There were the rulers, the aristocracy, the professionals, that is the professors, the lawyers, and so on, and then the peasants. There was no middle class. None. This phenomena left and continues to leave a bad taste in our mouth concerning any idea of a monarchy, of a king whose position of rule is hereditary in a line of previous rulers, and whose authority and power to rule is all-encompassing and autocratic, which means what the king wants he gets. What the king says goes. No ifs, ands, or buts. That's a monarchy. And if there, if there are any dissenters, or we would call them conscientious objectors in our day, not to mention anarchists or subversives, 
there was imprisonment or the death sentence depending on the will of the king of power. No wonder we have kind of this apprehension thinking about this. We resist with all of our being any idea of a monarchy ruled by a king. This has come to the fore even in our democracy with the recent revocation of the National Security Administration's wide-sweeping tactic of phone surveillance reported by the Reuter Report. Let me read it for you. A U.S. spying program that systematically collects millions of Americans' phone records is illegal. A federal appeals court ruled on Thursday, November 26, 2015. That wasn't very long ago. Putting pressure on Congress to quickly decide whether to replace or end the controversial anti-terrorism surveillance. So ends the Reuters report. So the government tried to mollify their revelation by a whistleblower, Edward Snowden, by saying that the only information gathered was megadata. Megadata is basically phone numbers, the frequency of the calls, etc., but no content of what was said in those calls. But the American public didn't buy it. The good thing they didn't. And they didn't buy it because they considered it to be government overreach, a spying on its own people. Even if the motive espoused was to catch terrorists who use cell phones to communicate their evil intent to maim or destroy or kill Americans. I want you to think of that. Americans value their freedom from government control and manipulation so much that they're willing to jeopardize discovery of planned terrorist attacks if it means that Big Brother is listening into their private phone conversations. So here we are in a gospel account in which Matthew gives us Jesus' ancestry. Verse 1, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, reference to David the king, and to Abraham, the spiritual father of the nation, Israel, and of all believers. Look at verse 6 and following, and just read the names to yourself. David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Josiah, and so forth. Verse 10, Hezekiah. Verse 11, Josiah, and so on. Who are these men? Well, they're all kings in the kingdom of David. Solomon, thereafter. So what is Matthew's intent 
in including these names in his history. He is showing the royal line into which Jesus, who is called Christ, verse 16, was born. What's the point that he's making? Well, Matthew is displaying in no uncertain terms that Jesus called Messiah, Messiah meaning Christ, is a descendant of the kings of the Davidic line of rulers to whom God promised, let me read it for you, David, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. To which David replied, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as it is, were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 18 and following. Matthew's genealogy is meant to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to King David. But he is not alone in this understanding. The prophet Isaiah writes, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will be called, and, and we, we will call him Emmanuel, meaning God's son. God with us, Isaiah 7, 14. Two chapters later, same author, Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. There's this idea of the king again. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. So he's going to be David's son. Establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. So the constituency of Jesus' kingdom, verse 3, mentions Judah, whose father was Jacob. When Jacob was about to die, he gathered his children together, all twelve of them, all sons, and proceeded to bless each child 
And these blessings carried the authority of God's word, that is, prophecies. Jacob's blessing for Judah was this. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. So what I am saying here is that Jesus was in the royal line of King David. These references are to him, Judah's royal appointment. Secondly, Matthew mentions four women in this genealogy. Tamar, verse 3, who was sexually abused by Judah, who thought her to be a prostitute. Rahab, verse 5, who was a prostitute in the days of Jericho's defeat. Ruth, verse 5, a Moabite, whose nation was under God's curse. And finally, Bathsheba, who is identified by David's sin in killing her husband Uriah so that he could have her for himself. Verse 6. Understand here that women were never named in genealogies. But they are here. They are here. And some, as in the case of Tamar and Rahab, were sexually exploited. And one, Ruth, whose people group was forbidden to enter into God's worship. She was a Moabite. Let me read it for you. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, to pronounce a curse on you. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 and following. And last but not least, Bathsheba, the unnamed wife of Uriah, whom David had killed in battle, to cover up his sin of adultery. Three of these women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, were Gentiles. Wait a minute. We're talking about a Jewish theocracy, and there's three Gentiles in the lineage. Something's going on here. We are reminded that in the kingdom of God, let me read it for you. This is from Galatians and the Apostle Paul. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, 26 or 29. So to recap, the constituency of Jesus' kingdom is the 12 tribes of Jacob, Judah being the lion and the promised ruler, four women representing, excuse me, representing both their female sex, but also their Gentile stature. They're not Jews. Very, very strange. And then thirdly, good and righteous kings, David, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, verse 6 and following, but also wicked kings, Joram, verse 8, Manasseh, verse 10. In the Chronicles, we read, Jehoram received a letter from Elijah, the prophet, which said, This is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. You have not walked in the ways of your father Jehoshaphat or of Asa, king of Judah, but you have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and you have led Judah and the people of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves just as the house of Ahab did. You have also murdered your own brothers, members of your father's house, men who were better than you. So now the Lord is about to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and everything that is yours with a heavy blow. You yourself will be very ill with a lingering disease of the bowels. The Lord aroused against Jehoram and hostility of the Philistines and of the Arabs who lived near the Cushites. They attacked Judah. They invaded it. They carried off all the goods found in the king's palace together with his sons and his wives. Not a son was left to him except Ahaziah, the youngest. And after all this, the Lord afflicted Jehoram with an incurable disease of the bowels. And in the course of time, at the end of the second year, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great pain. His people made no fire in his honor, as they had done for his father. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for eight years, so that means he was age 40 when he died. He passed away to no one's regret and was buried in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Second Chronicles 21, verse 12 through 20. Manasseh, verse 10 Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations of the Lord, had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab king of Israel had done. 
Ahab married the Jezebel, you remember. He bowed down to all the starry hosts. He worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery, practiced divination, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved Asherah pole that he had made and put it in the temple, of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Second Kings 21, verse 1 and following. We read on, Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Second Chronicles 33, verse 9. What a terrible legacy. Yet here he is in the pedigree record of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth consistency in Christ's kingdom are all the captives. Verse 11 mentions the exile to Babylon. This is a reference to the utter downfall of Jerusalem and the swallowing up of the kingdom by King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, of whom we read, on the seventh day of the fifth month in the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, his commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, all the houses of Jerusalem, every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. Second Kings 25, verse 8 and following. So the point is that Matthew lists some of the post-exilic captives which God brought back to rebuild Jerusalem. Some of them we know, Jeconiah, Zerubbabel. Others are people of little consequence, among whom is called one called Jacob, who's the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, 
who is called Christ, Messiah, verse 16. A number of skip generations are there because Matthew is keeping things simple by working only with select generations, each in groups of 14. For example, verse 17 says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 from the exile to the Christ. 14, 14, 14. Now he does that to keep things simple, probably for non-Jews. But there are lessons from Matthew's genealogy that we can learn. The kingdom over which God's son Jesus rules is a kingdom of redeemed sinners. It may seem remarkable that the ruler issuing from Judah, verse 2, would be called Christ, Messiah, verse 16. The anointed one, the one enlightened by God, anointed by God and would be born into a family line of rulers who were anything but saints. Sin is everywhere present, beginning with Judah himself, who had an ancestral union with his disguised daughter-in-law, whom he thought was a prostitute. Okay, but why is a Hebrew man even involved with a prostitute? So he's not innocent. This immoral conduct is further heightened by David's adultery with Bathsheba, followed by the orchestrated murder of her husband Uriah, using the conventions of war as the instrument of death, putting him in the front line, you remember, with the intent that Uriah would not make it out alive. And he didn't make it out from that war alone. Before this, King David's own family consisted of his great-great-grandfather, Salmon, not Solomon, Salmon, verse 5, who was married to his great-great-grandmother, Rahab, a former prostitute, they had a son, Boaz, who married a Moabite pagan, Ruth. These were his great-grandparents, Obed being his grandfather, Jesse his father, mother unknown. So as noted, some of the kings were fostered in the Davidic line where they were very wicked men. Not exactly the kind of relative one would choose to be part of the family tree, nor in the royal line of princes and kings. And we wonder how it is that Jesus, God's Son, by Holy Spirit's Conception with Mary would come out into a world 
with all these sinful characters in his bloodline. But they're there. What is going on? The writer of Hebrews helps us to understand as he looks back at the Old Testament history, and here's what he says. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he does help Abraham's descendants. For this reason... He had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2, 14 and following. All the list indicates that Jesus was not a pseudo-human being. No, he was a genuine human being with all of the characteristics of being human with the exception of sin. This is sometimes obscured by the way people talk of being human. Many assume that being human and being a sinner are one and the same. When people are caught in a sin... They will sometimes respond, well, after all, I'm only human. They are equating being human with being a sinner who violates God's law. But those two were not always one and the same. Adam was thoroughly human before he and Eve disobeyed and fell into sin. Their humanity was summed up in that they were creatures of God, made in his image, but certainly not gods themselves, which was the devil's lie. Eat of the forbidden tree and you will become your own God, said the devil, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, verse 5. The writer of Hebrews tells us of Jesus we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Hebrews 4, verse 15. Being a subject to temptation is one thing. Succumbing to temptation that's another thing. Jesus was submitted to temptation, but he did not cave into it and become the sinner. So we learn here that Jesus is totally a unique kind of king. He did not spend his days in the royal court sipping Bordeaux wine and eating shrimp cocktails. No, 
He was out among the people who were poor and despised, often sickly, many suffering, heartbroken, heavily burdened by very oppressive government, including an elite and snobby religious hierarchy. That was our Christ. His evaluation is given later in Matthew 19. For John, referring to the baptizer, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, oh, he has a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, oh, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But, Matthew writes, wisdom is proved right by her actions. In other words, wisdom's message got out among the populace despite these lying criticisms of the messengers. People did hear the gospel. They were convinced of God's truth. They became disciples, notwithstanding the petty objections of the religious elite. Jesus happily was labeled the friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was hated by the Roman officials, primarily charged with being immoral by the very Pharisees of his day. Jesus was, and Jesus is, a king for all kinds of sinners. Spiritual king with spiritual power to transform lives through forgiveness and reconciliation. A changed heart and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit. It is for sinners that King Jesus came. When the teachings of the law, who were first Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples. Now this is the Pharisees, the religious leaders, asking Jesus' disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners On hearing this, Jesus was listening. Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call the sinners. Mark 2, verse 16 and 17. And of course, he redeemed the sinners, and they are listed in his genealogy. But the redeemed sinners were and are repentant sinners. They just don't go on living a sinful life. Take another look at the sinners listed in our text. Judah, verse 3. He slept with his widowed daughter-in-law, who had disguised herself as a prostitute, 
and as a result became pregnant by him. And as a fee for the sex, he had promised a goat, but Tamar required a token gift till the goat was delivered. And the gift he gave her was his seal, they all carried a seal, and his staff, Genesis 38, verse 18. When the servants brought the goat, Tamar, no longer dressed as a prostitute, was nowhere to be found. Three months later, Judah was informed that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, was pregnant by prostitution and there were plans to execute her for immorality, but she produced Judah's seal and staff exposing his sins. And Judah said, here's his words, she is more righteous than I. And he would not sleep with her again. Genesis thirty-eight twenty-six. Confession, yes, but also repentance. He became a changed man. He did not deal with her again. What about Rahab? She was a prostitute. When Joshua's army approached Palestine, he sent spies into the land to scope out its defenses, and the spies were hidden by Rahab, whose testimony to them, We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og. When we heard it, our hearts sank, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God, in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family. Joshua 2, verse 10 and following. And history reports Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all that belonged to her because she had hid Joshua and all the spies to Jericho, and she lived among the Israelites to this day. Joshua 6, verse 25. She married Salmon, not Solomon, S-A-L-M-O-N. She married Salmon, became mother of Boaz, no more prostitution. She became part of God's community. We read, by faith, the prostitute Rahab became, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed when those, with those who were disobedient. Hebrews 11, verse 31. Reported in James 2.25 as a repentant sinner. Ruth, a Moabite pagan, 
and banned from worship of Jehovah because of her people's persecution of Israel. When her husband died, Naomi, her mother-in-law, instructed her to go find another husband while she planned to return home to Bethlehem. But we read that Ruth clung to Naomi, and Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you, to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Ruth 1, verse 16. She denounced the pagan gods of her history and exhibited faith in the only God there is, the Creator and the Lord. These people were converted. David and his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. His murder of Uriah. What about that? Well, God judged David and Bathsheba by taking the child of this adulterous affair. We have two psalms composed by David in which he confesses his sin Psalm 51, David is speaking. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away, O my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let my bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Psalm 51. Wonderful. This is confession. Okay. That's confession. But is this proof of repentance? You know, a lot of people are good speakers. They can talk about their sin and confess it. But they don't repent of it. So I refer you to the fact that history shows that in David's old age, 
King David suffered from hypothermia. That is, he just couldn't get warm physically. So they piled on the covers, the blankets, but it didn't help him. So his servants came up with this brainstorm. They would find a beautiful, gorgeous woman. Bring her to David to sleep with. And use the passion and the heat that comes from passion to get him warm and toasty. The woman was Abishag. And she, they searched the whole kingdom. She was a knockout. She was a gorgeous woman. It says she took care of the king and waited on him. But the king, I'm reading scripture, the king had no intimate relationships with her. 1 Kings 1, verse 4. Brethren, that's repentance. It's one thing to say, I won't do that again. It's another thing to not do it again. And here he had some wicked servants not helping him very much, but came up with this scheme to get him warm through sexual passion, but he refused to have any relationship with her. That's repentance. That's repentance. Then if ever there were a lost cause, Manasseh seems to fill the bill. Boy, what a guy, what a character. But observe the mercy of the Lord. God sent sent commanders to defeat him and take him captive to Babylon. And in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his pleas so that he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Afterwards, he got rid of all the foreign gods. He removed the images from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars and had built, that he had built on the temple hill in Jerusalem. And he threw down all those out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on that altar and told Judah to serve the Lord and the God of Israel only. Second Chronicles 33, verse 12 and following. Not only confession, but actions to prove that he was genuine. Brethren, the genealogy of Jesus as king includes redeemed sinners. Redeemed sinners. For whom then is now Jesus' blood and righteousness became theirs by faith and whose wicked sins and rebellion towards God were forgiven and as a result of repentance Notable changes 
in their lives proved that their faith was genuine and God's grace was sufficient. The same blessings is promised to you. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I'm the first, I'm the last. Apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Isaiah 44, verse 6 and following. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our Savior. He sets people who were once captive to sin, he sets them free on the basis of his own shed blood if they will trust him. The promise is to you the same. Trust in Christ to forgive your sins. He will do it. And you will be set free from the wrath and the judgment of God, which is coming. The whole world is approaching Armageddon, the day of God's righteous wrath. Our Lord, we just pray that you will grant to sinners this day righteous, a righteousness bound up in trusting the Lord Jesus and him alone. We thank you, Lord, that we have these examples in Scripture of some pretty wicked sinners. Wow. They even make us blush. But you stepped in and by your grace and mercy. You forgave them and washed them clean. And Lord Jesus, that gives us great hope and encouragement that you will do the same for us as we trust you. That's what the cross is all about. You paying the debt for your people's sins. You didn't wash it away. You didn't sweep it under the carpet. You paid the debt and thus set us free. Bless these truths to our hearts as we come into this season of the year. Help us to really think upon what the coming of Christ really means. In Jesus' name. We give you thanks. Amen. You take your brown hymnal this time and turn to number 143 and as you find it will you stand with me 143 in the brown
We thank you, O Lord, for the fact that you came upon a sinful earth to live among sinners. Your perfect holiness among darkened sinners, including your disciples. Yet how marvelously you ministered to them and demonstrated your love and care. Greater love has no one than this, you taught them. Then one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. Oh my. That's so humbling. I pray, Lord, that we would grasp the reality that we have a friend in Jesus. We have a Savior in Him and in no one else. And we need a Savior because we are laden down with our sin. And only Christ can deliver. That's our time today. We have future meetings coming up today, and we ask, Lord, you will bless all that is said and done, that you would get the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Now that we come back here, what's the deal? Back here at 5. We don't have to bring any food. We can if we want to. But we have stuff ordered. Okay. Back at five.